Welcome to episode 11 of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Susan Dobart and she is an MI researcher. Susan, I hope I pronounced your name right, but will you introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. I'm Susan Dopard. I am a health and wellness consultant and a certified motivational interviewing trainer and diabetes educator, and I'm based in Los Angeles. Very good. Yeah, Susan uh, is extremely experienced, especially with something that's uh, really useful like MI, and uh, I was fortunate enough to come across it and do some of Susan's courses, which I'd highly recommend. Um, so we're going to get into a little bit of MI, what it's all about, and Susan's experience. So you're a, a health and wellness consultant. Um, as you said already as well, you're certified in motivational interviewing. You're uh, a very highly experienced trainer, um, and you're a certified diabetes educator. Where would you like to start there with all of your experience? Whatever you'd like to do, Ross. Um, it's you know perfectly fine with me. Wherever you'd like to to make that happen. And by the way, thank you for um, having me on your show. It's truly an honor. Oh, I'm delighted to have you on. It's uh, it's always great to talk to you. Um, so Susan, your your health and wellness uh, consulting. What's kind of like some of the main things you talk about with people? Like what what would be like a typical consultation topic you have with with clients? Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like especially um, with all that's going on in our world, people have very complex medical issues now. And so um, my specialty is diabetes, um, but I feel like I see so many people now with complex gut issues, um, such as bacterial overgrowth, um, people actually with mold-related illnesses, um, parasites, things I never imagined myself talking to people about. But um, the gut issues, um, diabetes, um, menopause, uh, cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, um, you know, the list goes on and on. But the main thing with many of these health-related illnesses is something called insulin resistance, which is a driver for many metabolic diseases. And, you know, I can go over that now or later, if that's something that you're interested in hearing about. Yeah, sure. Um, it definitely would be interesting to get into the mechanisms of uh, a lot of the health-related issues. So insulin resistance is something that um, people are usually born with. And how it works is um, people are born either what's called insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. And usually it's to do with genetics. It can be due to the mother being insulin resistant or insulin sensitive, um, what the mom eats while she's pregnant, believe it or not, because conception starts in the womb and or starts at conception. And um, also how much weight she gains and how much weight the baby is at birth. So people that are, just to give an example, people that are insulin sensitive, when they eat a bowl of cereal, their pancreas, which is the organ which produces insulin, secretes just the right amount of insulin. Um, it gets burned off and metabolized, but that doesn't happen with people who are insulin resistant. They eat the same bowl of pasta and there's a bit of a delay in the food getting into the cells. So what happens is the pancreas gets a signal of the delay over secretes insulin. So what happens is that triggers um, a host of inflammatory issues because of all the in extra insulin in the bloodstream. 
and causes the person to be predisposed to more fat gained. But what also happens is the extra glucose that's sitting in the bloodstream has to go somewhere, so the liver takes it up. So the liver, when it gets full of glucose, um, it can start the train towards fatty liver, but also predispose the person towards higher levels of cholesterol and triglycerides, right? And what happens is when a person who's insulin resistant, every time they eat, even no matter what they eat, whether it's carbs or, you know, um, protein or, or even a little bit of fat, their pancreas secretes insulin. So we say the less often they eat, the less they expose their body to insulin, which helps with control of the insulin resistance. Interesting. Yeah. So then is that where the condition uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease comes from? Is that something you see in your clients? Exactly. And the interesting thing is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was not even a diagnosis, I believe, before 1980. But now it's it's quite prevalent. And they say that it's actually prevalent in many children, even as young as five years old, because of all the carbs and sugars and fructose and processed foods in our diet. That leads me on to my next question. So what do you think is the cause of the higher rates? Is it fair to say diabetes is on the rise? Sorry, type two diabetes is on the rise. And then also, uh, what do you think would be the cause behind that if it is on the rise? Mm -hmm. Definitely, um, diabetes is is on the rise, and they say by the year 2050 that almost 50% of the population will be type 2 diabetic. And um, the driver is all our food, our processed foods, the way our um, animals are fed, all the um, carbs and sugars in our diet, and you know basically the lack of integrity of a whole foods real food diet, um, people not eating vegetables, um, not eating healthy sources of protein and healthy fats, but defaulting to processed and fast food, which is more the norm rather than um, the former. And if I think if people want to eat healthy, uh, healthier, uh, they have to be extremely intentional about it. Um, and it takes a fair amount of discipline to do that. Yeah. Um, something I'm noticing with my clients is that they're very busy. They're working a lot, especially clients working from home. It's kind of like um, the culture here in the Bay Area is to be busy all the time. Just even like, you know, some of my clients would have said, um, I get like a, a day off or I, I finish early and it's kind of like, I'd nearly rather be busy just working, you know? So that relationship with work, I think it's very like unhealthy and then it leads to having less time to do like things to value, such as cooking. So uh, is that some, something you notice with your clients and how do you get clients to, I guess, MI will tie in here, but uh, how do you like get a client who wants to be healthier to kind of make more time for their health? Mm. And that's a, that's an excellent question, Ross. And it's, it's a very complicated answer and it's really different for each person. And, and I think it all ties back to, values is, you know, um, there's something called a, a double-sided reflection with motivational interviewing where you talk about someone's ambivalence on the first part of what we call a reflection or a summary back to them. And on the second part, you use the value. So on the one hand, you're really busy. 
um, making your meals is challenging for you. And on the other hand, you really care about your health, you care about your weight, and uh, you're wondering the best way to be able to take care of that. So part of the, the essence of MI is evoking in someone what their value is and their own wisdom about their health and what would make sense to them. Yeah, very interesting. I love the idea that the client is the, their own expert in their own life. And that'll always be the case. That's like a really empowering sort of thought. So would you just give a, a summary of what motivational interviewing is, uh, what benefits people can see by learning about or applying motivational interviewing to their own lives and any other relevant info you can uh, related to MI? Sure. Well, MI is, it was developed in the addiction field by um, a man named Bill Miller. And uh, he started to notice, you know, many years ago, he subscribed to um, the work of Carl Rogers, was, who was a psychologist in the 50s and all about client-centered therapy. And he realized early on that just telling people what to do doesn't work. You know, I, one of the quotes I love is, advice is the junk mail of life right? Nobody wants to be told what to do, but yet we're so quick to do that. We're so quick when someone's describing a problem to give them a solution, which we call that in motivational interviewing, the writing reflex, that little helpful hint. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? Um, and it's human nature. If you tell someone what to do, that they're going to tell you why it doesn't work. And the problem with that is they actually become more committed to their ambivalence when they say it out loud, why something doesn't work. So that's why we actually avoid telling people what to do because it can actually cause them to go in the other direction. Right? So motivational interviewing, it's basically a collaborative partnership conversation to help evoke someone's own wisdom for change. You know, so if someone says, you know, I uh, they come to me for, a diet issue, um, but then they might say something like, well, you know, I quit smoking 20 years ago. You know, that's a huge 911 um, about how they've been successful in the past. So I'll say, okay, when you quit smoking, what did you do? What was different? So I'm trying to get them to activate that part of their brain about how they are successful. So they may say, well, I did X, Y, and Z, and just them saying that out loud helps activate their brain, like I said, but it reinforces to their brain that they can be successful and how they were successful. And then if I summarize back to them what they said, it's a, it's a double reflection to the brain about how they can be successful with the current quandary or the current change, which is so much more impactful than any piece of information that um, we could ever give them. Brilliant, yeah, you're bringing back all the stuff we learned uh, in your course. It's actually getting me kind of excited because I feel as though they're like invaluable tools to navigate like relationships, which can be tricky, you know, at the best of times. Um, and I wanna play devil's advocate and kind of like, you know, highlight to people how effective the tools are but will you just first talk about the spirit of mi because that's what i'm really hearing from what you're saying you have a very sort of particular way of speaking that i feel like is uh this it's, it's in the spirit of mi really mm. 
Yeah, and, and the spirit is something that was um, developed, you know, in the first in the first edition of MI and has been carried throughout. And we say without the spirit of MI, all the skills are lost. And it's really the, the spirit is how do you um, have collaboration with a client, you know, evoke um, their own motivation for change in a kind, compassionate way, right? And the partnership piece is one of the, in my opinion, one of the most important pieces of the spirit of MI. Um, and we call it having equal power sharing in the relationship that, yes, I'm an expert in nutrition or whatever, um, field it is, but I don't have an ex expertise in you, right? And so together, how do we walk down this road so that we find the solution that best works for you? And I think what happens is people use a lot of I statements, like I think you should quit smoking or quit drinking rather than, you know, you're wondering what um, being sober might mean for you, what that might be like for you. That's partnership, whereas the former is being the expert. Yeah, it's, 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 it almost feels like all the advice of MI is counter to everything that we pick up in society, communicating with, with each other, all these kind of bad habits, really. Um, so let's say, for example, in some of your work, I know you said you worked in prisons and you work with people with addiction. So typically, I feel as though someone from you know, the general population would say, Oh, someone with an addiction they need expert advice they need expert help should they they can't help themselves or they're just completely incapable they're consumed by the addiction so what would you say to someone uh, who has that view and is like you know even something simple like a, a parent child relationship it's like the parents like i'm the expert you know i'm experienced i know i know best but as you say we'll just call it like the client is the expert of their own lives um what happens when you kind of don't follow the spirit of MI and the guidelines within MI and you approach a conversation as the expert and you don't let the other person uh, have autonomy. Hmm. Well, the number one reason why people change is um, empathy on the part of the professional, right? And so we always have to be empathetic and caring and kind to people that we work with. And if we act as the expert and tell them what to do, we injure what's called the working alliance, right? And the working alliance is how people change. And, you know, I usually ask people who start to rave about their doctor or their therapist, I'll say, what is it about them that you like? And I'll, they'll say, they get me, they know me, they understand me. They don't just give me lots and lots of information or advice. And they even remember things about me. They don't have to look in my chart, right? And so that tells me that professional is working in a collaborative partnership way, which makes the client want to go back. Right? And I think Bill Miller, he said this recently, I heard him say this, that the person with all the answers is in the room with you, right? And they may for have forgotten their answers. So we have to sometimes evoke it from them. So for example, um, you know, someone who has a, a, you know, an alcohol issue, I'll say, you know, when 
you've had a day when you were sober. What was different about that day? What helped you? You know, and sometimes they'll say, well, I don't know. But usually they'll circle back, their brain will start to work on it. And then they'll say it out loud, which helps them remember how they were sober that day. Right? And that's the, the beautiful part and the spirit of MI is evoking people's past successes so that they can leave your presence thinking about it in a brighter way and having more hope. And that's the one really beautiful thing about MI is we always have our eye on the our, our, our eye on the horizon for hope for people who don't have hope for themselves. And we hold that hope inside. So every time they leave our presence, they leave with a little more hope. Great, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of reading about uh, self-compassion. Uh, Kristen Neff, the kind of the, the, the lead researcher for self-compassion, has a lot of good uh, articles and uh, publications. So I, I feel like having read about self-compassion, I feel as though it's like severely lacking in the general population. You know, even in myself, for example, I'd love to be able to be more, less, uh, I'd, I'd rather buy into the culture of like, uh, hard work is better. You know, I'd rather be like, you know, you can give yourself a break every, you know, every time you need it. So uh, why do you think it is that people, do you think people lack self-compassion? And why do you think that is? And, you know, why do they like hope? Where is that coming from? Hmm. That's the million dollar question, right? You know, but the fact that you're researching compassion, Ross, and talking about how you want to do that shows that your brain, your neural pathways are really working towards something that you truly desire. And you're starting to go against what's been a default response to you. So you just saying it out loud shows that you're going to be able to do that. Okay. Yeah. And that's called an affirmation. And part of it is we're, we don't recognize our own strengths within. And so in the, the spirit of motivational interviewing, if we recognize and take ownership of our own strengths, then we're able to recognize that in others and give them affirmations they need. And um, there's different skills in motivational interviewing. And, and one of the skills is the skill of affirmations. And they, the research has pointed out that that is the skill that produces the most change or what we call change talk in clients. And change talk um, is the word they've, kind, they've coined that goes towards change. So we say that in motivational interviewing, of course, we have our problem lens on, you know, we're looking for problems. But on top of that, we have to have our, our affirmation lens, where we're looking for any little thing the client is doing well, even if they just showed up, or they made a phone call, or they won, they made one small change. And if we point that out to them, in a genuine, authentic way, they're able to start to take ownership and see their strengths, which makes them want to live up to it and do it even better. Because many times people don't believe you when you make an affirmation. And so they, it does make them want to uh, do it once you point it out to them. Oh, so interesting. So it's easy to forget our strengths. Where does that come from? Do you think, um, 
is it hard to remember our strengths or because obviously we the older you get the more you go through and you like something i'm realizing is people who are older are exceptionally strong because you wouldn't have survived as long as you did without being a strong person like survival of the fittest we'll say you know so um why is it that i guess we have sort of like memory loss uh with our strengths and then also how do you balance out not becoming too proud you know so it's like let's say uh, i passed this particular challenge i'm a, you know i'm like a great person for doing that how do you avoid being too proud of of your strengths and how do you remember them as well at the same time yeah how do you stay humble right yeah well i think it's very easy to forget our strengths and forget our successes and that's why we have that part of motivational interviewing to help people remember all the good that they've done and you know this is my guess you know i don't have any research or anything to base this up but i think it's easy if you don't intentionally stay positive in life it's very easy to default to the negative uh, you know and look at all the gloom and doom and um you know i think especially with covid and all that we've gone on in this world the last 20 months is how do you intentionally stay positive and see the good in each moment and each day and um, one of the things that has been really beneficial to me during COVID is I've been able to train you know organizations and people across the United States that I would never have had the opportunity to train if it hadn't been for COVID you know with all the virtual trainings that I do and uh, so I've been you know very very blessed with that and um, being in contact with people that, um, like I said, I would have never been able to have contact with. Great. So it's like a case of realizing that you have to kind of do the work yourself and spot the the strengths that you have and spot the the kind of like a, a grateful approach to life, like spot the moments where you can be grateful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I feel as though maybe we have it too good maybe our generation is just like too fortunate with uh the the quality of life we have that it makes it harder to mm-hmm. to appreciate the little things which are really important mm-hmm. um so you have a wealth of experience with mi how long does it take someone to become skilled at mi and um what are some of the kind of the basics that people should learn to try and get better or to get more skilled with mm-hmm. mi that's the golden question <laughs> Well, Bill Miller was asked a few, you know, more than a few years back, well, what's the difference between knowing MI and being MI? And he said, oh, about 10 years. Uh, so motivational interviewing, it's a language, just like any other language. And we say it's similar to learning a foreign language or playing a musical instrument like the violin. And so you can't learn to play the violin in a couple days, right? And I think the problem is a lot of um, professionals come to a four-hour training or an eight, you know eight-hour training or two-day training, thinking they will, you know, become proficient in motivational interviewing, and that's just not the case because of the language. So the start is going to a workshop, seeing is this something that I want to subscribe to? Is this something that makes sense to me? Um, is this something that I want to commit a good chunk of time or my life to learning and using? And, you know, I talked to my participants, that's only something that you can decide. And then 
the way people become more proficient is the coaching piece. And um, about seven years ago, I became what's called a coder in motivational interviewing. And there's a coding system that was developed uh, called the MITI, M-I-T-I. And if you want to submit a 20-minute tape of you talking to someone using the, the skills and the tools of motivational interviewing, it's coded to the fidelity of the language by a coder. And then there's usually a coaching session on it, uh, around it. Um, because what happens is a lot of times people think they're doing motivational interviewing, they're really not. And so when they hear it for themselves, and then there's a coaching um, a con and a concrete coding around it, they can start to see what they are or aren't doing and then intentionally change things for the future. Yeah, I actually came across coding in my postgrad and it was such a new concept to me, but it's basically, you're just trying to like decode some sort of script and trying to find for MI, I guess it's, it's change talk. So uh, could you talk a little bit about how the, the, the typical approach to trying to change people's behavior doesn't work and then how change talk through coaching when you become an effective uh, MI practitioner is more effective. Hmm. The difference between the two. Right, right. Well, people have a lot of ambivalences about their behavior change. You know, I know I should exercise, but I'm just so spent at night. Right. And I, um, and so that statement has what's called change talk and sustain talk in the same sentence. You know, I know I should exercise. That's the change piece. But I'm so spent after work. That's what's called the sustain piece or status quo. Now, a lot of times someone will pick the sustain piece part and say it back to them because they think they're being empathetic. Well, they are being empathetic, like, oh, it's, you know, you're so tired at night, it's so hard for you. But what happens when is when someone hears that, they actually can become more committed to their ambivalence, right? To the reasons why they're not changing. So we say in motivational interviewing, because they're intertwined, pick out the change piece and say that back to them. So they hear that piece, not the struggle. So, you know, on the one hand, you're, you're tired at night, but on the other hand, exercise is really important to you and you're trying to figure out how to put that into your schedule. Or you could just say the second part, you know, you realize exercise is important to you and you're, you're wondering how to put that piece in so it's a regular part of your routine. Right. Yeah, that makes me think of a few things. So it's like, um, I know I do that myself a lot. A client will say, had a tough weekend, I was feeling sick or uh, the weather was crap or, you know, whatever, whatever is going on. And I'll be like, yeah, that is tough. You know, like that would make any change in your, uh, your health behavior is challenging. Mm -hmm. But as you've just said, that's sustained sustain talk and that promotes the status quo. Um, and then it makes me think how, you know, in MI, you want to think of the client as the expert. But I, I know myself, I come in with the bias that I'm the expert. So with MI, you're coming in in a more collaborative approach. So how do you know when you're, I guess, what is the change talk uh, to look for so that you know you're not being biased? You're not trying to push someone they don't want to go, you know? What would be very clear examples of uh, change talk? Just could you re, re, uh, recover that? 
Well, sometimes it's not like in your face clear, but it it's it's the skillful piece of MI of looking underneath the words. So if someone says, you know, I'm just really struggling with exercise. Um, they they want to exercise because they're basically saying that. So you can say what's underneath, what's the hope. So you're really trying to find the path that's going to work for you to create sustainable exercise for the future. Right. And yeah. so, it, you know, looking, always looking for the hope, always looking for the change, always looking for what's underneath and a lot of uh, professionals when they're learning in motivational interviewing says well that's i'm putting words in their mouth or you know i don't want to guess but it's a guess it's a hypothesis and that is okay in motivational interviewing if you have the spirit if you have the spirit of partnership and collaboration because if you're wrong the client will correct you because they sense that and guess what you can it's even better if you're wrong because they'll give you more information about what's important to them and what they need so guessing isn't a bad thing it can be it's good either way yeah and then because you're collaborating you're coming from the right place you're not trying to push them somewhere that you think is uh the right way for them to make a change it's more like uh, i'm gonna make an educated guess based on what i know about you and the fact that i you know, care about you as a client and, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the kind of the common things you see are like the writing reflex. Um, can you talk about the writing reflex, which is like, I, I feel like pervasive in society. Everyone is guilty of it at some point and other things to look out for that don't use the spirit of MI. Mm. Yeah. The writing reflex is, is a big one in terms of I know best and I'm going to tell you what to do. And um, that's, like you said, very pervasive, especially among healthcare professionals is um, not listening to people and listening for their motivation and listening for what would help them and then saying it back to them and thinking that they know best. And the problem with that is um, clients, patients sense it and they leave feeling very uncomfortable. And a lot of times they won't say back to that person, you know, well, this isn't going to work for me or this offended me. They just won't come back, right? Because the that person injured the working alliance. And uh, I think, you know, one of the most important pieces of motivational interviewing is the listening piece. And, you know, that word is so overused and I find in my trainings, many will say, you know, I thought I was listening, but I was listening with the intent to ask a question or give a response. I really wasn't listening with the intent of reflecting back to someone's motivation of what's important to them and what would help them. So you mentioned a double-sided reflection. Is that a more effective way to listen and have a conversation with the spirit of MI? And could you just kind of define that? Sure. Well, there's the main, what we call micro skills of motivational interviewing, and we call them ORs, open questions, affirmations, which we talked about, reflections and summaries. And a reflection 
is basically a summary back to someone what they told you. And it's summarizing their words, um, but really the more effective type of reflection is summarizing what's underneath their words. We call it a simple reflection or a complex reflection. And there's like seven, eight different types of complex reflections. You can reflect someone's emotion or you can um, reflect the autonomy piece of, you know, what they're trying to say. I mean, there's like multiple ways I'm not going to get into them because it's, you know, beyond this podcast. But a double-sided reflection is where um, you can either reflect both sides of the ambivalence. Uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, you're um, really worried about your health. And on the other hand, you're really struggling with this behavior. I like to reflect um, the sustained talk, the struggle on the first part and the change talk on the second part, because the client will, will talk about the last thing that you said. So do you land on the change piece or do you land on the sustained piece? So I'll give you an example. Um, on the one hand, you're really having a hard time thinking about quitting smoking. And on the other hand, you want to breathe easier. What's the next thing they're going to think about or talk about? Breathing easier. Now, if I switch it and say, you know, on the one hand, you want to breathe easier. And on the other hand, you're really struggling with quitting smoking. What's the next thing you're going to talk about? So part of motivational interviewing is being intentional about your words, but also intentional about the placement of your words. Yeah, words have so much meaning. And... I feel like we're kind of dancing around doing the, the role play we discussed, going into an example for people to listen to about uh, how words can have such a benefit. And just something as well I'm thinking of is, let's say you have a, a relationship with a friend or you know your partner or a, a client, whoever it is, and you're speaking to them and you have this bias in your head, they need to make a change. I feel like a certain pressure comes with that and it's not really that nice. It's kind of like, if only they could be this way, if only they could be that way. And it kind of gets in the way of having like a genuine connection with the person. And uh, the thing about MI is that you're collaborating with the person. So it actually gets rid of that kind of pressure or tension or just uh, lack of authenticity that, that should be there um, that by default, we kind of just get rid of. So I think it'll probably come up in the, in the role play. But uh, the role play was just something I've been thinking about as a, uh, a health coach is to write more health-related articles, research-based articles that would have, uh, as we call it in like, you know, when you're making content is like more of a, a shelf life than say like an Instagram post, for example. A blog post is going to be around for a lot longer. It can be a lot more detailed. But I'm ambivalent about getting started. So I was thinking we could use that as the, uh, the template for a role play and Susan could use her skills as the, as the expert or the collaborator um and we could see you know where it takes us sure sure okay well tell me a little bit more about that ross so i have been to college and i like to think i have a good understanding of the research in in health and uh training and, and nutrition and I, I like to communicate it to people and you know educate people but it's a lot of work i don't know are people really interested in it i don't know what i really enjoy it and sometimes it gets a bit too technical. So that's kind of where I'm at. So you're kind of thinking about a lot of things that are getting in the way of you 
wanting to do something you think might be helpful to people. Exactly. Yeah. I, I know I'd enjoy it, but I can think of a lot of, let's call them challenges to actually making it happen. Hmm. So your focus has been on the challenges rather than the thing you truly want. Exactly. Yeah. Because a lot of people who I'd look up to already do this, you know, and I'd aspire to be similar to like my role models and have similar behaviors as them. But mm. I've allowed myself to focus on the, the challenges. Mm. Yeah. And you're wondering if you have anything to add to what they have already said. Exactly. Yeah. Because my role models are more experienced than me. Uh, they've been doing it longer. And uh, I guess you have to start somewhere, but I just haven't let myself get started. It's almost like you're forgetting that different people have different brains and, you know, one person's brain may connect to one of your colleagues and another person's brain may connect to yours. Yeah, yeah. And there's definitely, you know, friends or kind of people who follow me, like, you know, my following is not large at all or uh, anything to write home about, but uh, there's definitely people who like what I put out. And it'll only grow if I start. But if I don't start, it's going to, as you said already, the status quo will be maintained. Hmm. What do you think gets in the way of you writing a blog post? Definitely planning, I think, you know. Uh, hmm. If I had a plan that would get the, the ball in motion um, and then upgrading my website as well is a big one. I think hmm. having a, a hub for where you would put health uh, education content is somewhere that would just make it much more accessible. And um, actually there's sites like Medium, for example, where I could start. Hmm. So having a concrete plan and then a beautiful site that really captures all the essence of who you are that you could be proud to put that blog post on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just putting everything um, that I know and I'm passionate about related to health and, and fitness in the one place mm. um, because my main hub is kind of like Instagram. I do have a Google website, but it's not as uh, sophisticated as something like yours where you have a blog, you have your blog posts. And um, it's interesting now that we're talking, I know the ball is rolling and I'm talking with a lot of change talk in, in what I'm saying. So um, yeah, I feel as though I could start with something simple like medium. And then uh, when a website seems like a more appropriate, you know, a, a more advanced website like yours it uh, seems like a good idea I'll, I'll make that change mm, yeah so you could see where that could be a, a good first step to be a bridge towards getting you to the place that you want to go absolutely yeah the ironic thing is if a client is making a change i don't know have you noticed this but a client will you know ask for advice or just talk about a change they want to make and they'll say i haven't been working out or eating like i i would I've hoped I'm going to go 100% all in and make this extreme change. And I know intuitively that's not a great way to start. You know, you're biting off more than you can chew. So the using a, a site like Medium, where it's like, as far as I know, a free service, and uh, you can upload it like relatively easily, um, very easy to use. It's like a nice small step in the right direction, as opposed to like, you know, paying someone to get a website when I'm not fully convinced that it's the right way to go. Hmm. Yeah, it's the manageable part of getting to where you want to go. Yeah, it's like a little 
it's a manageable step in the right direction as opposed to like jumping in at the deep end and, and feeling pressured to post onto a website that is harder to drive traffic to, to than social media. And also the money aspect of it would put me under kind of like an external, I'd be externally motivated by the money when I want it to come from within. Hmm. Yeah. It wouldn't feel so forced. Yeah. 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 I feel like, uh, that was very productive and we literally talked for like not even five minutes, you know, it, it like it, it displays exactly how MI is so effective. Hmm. Yeah. And you know, you're, it's in your heart to write. So part of it is how do you do it in a way that makes sense to your brain? So it doesn't, it feels more organic, right? And it doesn't feel so like forced and like this huge boulder. You know, it feels more like a little, a little soft snowflake, you know, that you could actually wrap your head around. Yeah. I don't know if you know about uh, the self-determination theory and how it talks about autonomy and how important autonomy is. And that's, of course, a big part of MI where um, I wouldn't want to make content and do it because, oh, this other personal trainer is doing it or um, because I feel compelled to do it. I want it to come from my own motivation and feel like I have control over it. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's kind of what we talked about a little bit there where it's manageable and I'm doing it in my own way. Um, yeah. And it, it goes back to one of your points about uh, the client has to make the choice themselves. I, I love the saying, uh, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like that comes up in MI a lot. So, mm -hmm. th yeah, the skills are, are absolutely uh, vital. So is our ORs, they're the micro skills. Are they the kind of fundamental skills people should learn when first learning MI or would you recommend starting somewhere else? Well, the beauty of MI, there isn't one right way to learn it or thing to focus on. But really, if someone wanted to start somewhere, the spirit is the place to start of the partnership piece. Um, you know, the collaboration, the kindness, the compassion in their conversations. And it's interesting because Bill Miller and Terry Moyer, who's one of the main researchers in motivational interviewing, they, they wrote a book that came out about three months ago on what are the eight attributes of helping professionals. And within that, there's a lot of motivational interviewing in their book uh, that the, um, the piece of empathy is number one um, and then genuineness on the part of the professional um, kindness compassion evoking someone's wisdom there's you know it's all tied up in there and so if you learned ors if you didn't have the spirit you know that those skills would be lost right so i just usually recommend people start with the spirit and then really work on becoming proficient in ORs, maybe with a tape, maybe with some coaching. Of course, going to a workshop first to get an overview to see, is this something I really want to subscribe to? Absolutely. Yeah. Like one of your workshops is, is it gave me such a good uh, start with MI. Um, do you think MI can be used in your own life personally? So for example, in your own talk within yourself, like in some quiet time you might have, or maybe if you're journaling, um, and do you think it could be used in like, you know, uh, friendships and relationships, or is it just best kept to your work and work with clients? Mm. Very good question. 
the thing about using MI with family members or, you know, someone who's not a client is usually we have an agenda with our friends or spouses, partners, um, and that makes MI null and void, right? Because uh, you cannot have an agenda. You have to stay completely neutral, right? For example, um, my husband doesn't like to exercise. And so I cannot use MI with that because I have an agenda. I want him to exercise and be healthy. But if he says to me, you know, can I have a MI conversation about something with a client or some, something else? Sure, I can stay neutral, right? Then because I don't have an agenda with respect to that. Um, with respect to yourself, it's a little harder because, you know, how do you reflect your own thoughts? Um, the only way is there is a book by uh, one of my fellow trainers, Alan Zukoff, and he's called Finding Your Way to Change. And he talks about how you can use MI with yourself through journaling. Right? And, you know, it's a very good book. So if someone who was interested in using MI, but I think it's it's a good idea if there's something you're truly ambivalent about, you need some help, you know, to seek out a motivational interviewing practitioner. You can go to motivationalinterviewing.org and find, you know, there's about 1500, we're called mentees, motivational interviewing network trainers, you know, and find someone that you feel comfortable with. Brilliant. Yeah, we'll, of course, attach uh, links to your site and your, your work as well. And that book and anything else you think is relevant uh, for anyone listening. Um, so just going back to your own work, you, you work kind of like in, I feel like the most challenging situations, like with people with addiction. Um, I got really interested in addiction over the pandemic. I just found it fascinating um, how you can have kind of like everything in your life, but you could have something missing. And for example, self-compassion, you know, to put it like lightly, um, and that could, you know, result in you be, you know, having an addiction, meeting your needs in, in uh, unhealthy ways. Um, could you talk just a little bit about the work you do, why you enjoy MI so much, and then just maybe some of the kind of information you've learned about addiction? Because I feel like it's becoming more talked about, but there's not a whole lot of experts speaking about it. Hmm. Yeah, addiction is, is such rampant in our culture and addictiveness in many areas, you know, alcohol, drugs, even, you know, uh, workaholism, right, all these, all these things and, and people, you know, there, there's something inside that they're not addressing, right, and so that's where a motivational interviewing conversation can help with that. Um, can help bring that out and that it's really has to be done with someone who's very skilled at MI and and works either uh, very skilled in MI and addictions or of course very skilled in MI and uh, so I train um, a lot of different organizations in motivational interviewing you know mental health professionals one of my favorite contracts is I work with the VA addictions physicians and social workers in Arizona and training them in MI about how to um, have conversations with their population, which is very challenged with the vets and families of the vets who have um, multiple addictions, um, lots of drug addictions and alcohol addictions. And so that's been um, challenging and, and also really 
um, wonderful to work with them and see the progress that they've made in helping that population. Right. And then um, one of my other contracts that I, I love working is the Navajo population and all the healthcare workers that they um, that work with the Navajos with their not only addictions, but the rampantness of diabetes. And there's something called an A1C, which is your three month average blood sugar, which is supposed to be four to 5.6. And the average A1C for a Navajo is 13. So it's like, you know, these are, they're walking around with blood sugars of four or 500. And uh, so these physicians, nurses, dietitians, doctors are trying to help them in the best way. And so I've been uh, working with training them, mostly um, they work in Arizona and New Mexico on those tribes and helping them help those people with um, having better lives and taking better care of themselves, you know, lowering their A1C, helping with addictions, et cetera. That's great, yeah. I, I came here thinking America is like the land of opportunity, but uh, minorities, unfortunately, they have like a very tough time kind of, I guess, fitting in and they have a lot of uh, health problems, such as what you've mentioned. Um, but you can make great progress with MI. What are like some of those success stories you have and like what change could a practitioner or a client expect to see, for example, if they work with you directly or if they learned MI and they worked with, with clients? What, what's like a realistic uh, change you could see you mean in people who are learning mi or uh with with clients in terms of the, let's say for example um i have never learned mi before and then i apply it to work in with my own clients what change could i expect to see mm -hmm. maybe in myself in my own practice or in the actual outcomes with clients mm -hmm. well motivational interviewing is a game changer um and i think when someone handed me the book in motivational interviewing, you know, I'll date myself in 1996, all those years ago, I, I never dreamed that it would change my life in the way it has. And, and I feel like it's rocked my world in terms of changing how I am, who I am, how I work with people, how I operate. Um, you know, it's changed everything. And so, but uh, that's me, you know, I subscribed, as uh, my husband says, I drank the Kool-Aid <laughs> uh, all those years ago. And I just can't imagine that if I hadn't drank the Kool-Aid, what my life, you know, I'd be kind of a boring dietitian, just telling people what to do. And, you know, no one wants to be told what to do, especially what to eat, you know, food is very intimate. And so it depends on someone's level of commitment. Is this something you're going to subscribe to, drink the Kool-Aid and commit to learning it? Because it's not easy. It's not an easy language to learn. Um, you have to intentionally uh, really work at it, do tapes, get coaching. And um, if, if you do commit to doing that, it, like, it'll be a game changer for your practice. Um, you know, clients, they don't know what I'm doing when I'm, you know, doing motivational interviewing, but they sense it, they feel it. They feel the hope, they feel the difference, you know, and they may, uh, they usually point it out. Even parents, when I'm seeing children, they'll say, can you teach me how you just talk to my kid? 
and how you got them to say what they said. I'm like, well, it's a little, little harder than you think. But, uh, you know, and, and there's some research that shows of 100% of people who go to MI trainings, only 15% will learn it to fidelity because of what I just told you. 70% will say, this is amazing. I love this. But, you know, they, they hit a point where it's just too difficult to put the time in and they abandon. And then the other 15% say, this is not for me. So I ask people in my trainings, do you want to be part of that 15%? You know, if you do, it's not an easy road, just like with learning any, you know, any complex language or playing a musical, musical instrument. But it, like I said, it's a game changer. And, you know, you have to decide, is that, is that something that's going to work for you and make sense to you? Yeah, you really have to commit to it. It just reminds me of something I hear a lot of, uh, people and clients say is like when they go to their, you know, their, their doctor, their doctor often says if they have something like a condition similar to like type two diabetes, the doctor will say, you know, can you lose weight? And it's like, it's a very kind of like directed sort of like, you know, one sided bit of instruction. And it's never really a case of like the doctor saying, what would you like to do? And I feel as though that's something so simple um and that kind of spirit of mi the collaborative approach is like so effective um and it's something you can kind of look forward to once you learn mi that you take the the pressure off your, your yourself as the, the quote-unquote expert and you kind of share it you know because the client's only going to change as much as they want to change they're not going to be forced um and you bring something up that uh, the research shows that when a practitioner learns motivational interviewing, there's much less burnout, you know, because we don't have to come up with the solutions. We just have to evoke them. Right. Yeah. That's part of what brought me back to MI. So I have my own coach, but, uh, she just reminded me of MI and, uh, it made me think of it is, it is work, you know, any change you want to make is going to be work, but it's very effective. Um, and very sort of, uh, I, I feel as though it empowers you and it gives you a lot of confidence, um, in, in what you're doing because you have all the skills you've talked about. Um, and just something that I'm thinking of is that, uh, in psychology for like a therapist, when they're learning how to work with clients, it said they have to do a lot of work themselves. Like, you know, um, on their own biases, maybe, or just on their own skills. With MI, is there a lot of work that you had to do initially to learn it? And did you learn kind of like anything about yourself along the way that you hadn't previously been aware of? Well, we say with motivational interviewing, it's a no judgment zone, right? There's no judgment. And so if you have any judgment, it has to be completely out of the room outside. And, um, I think one of the reasons that we all go into a helping professional is, you know, we want to help people. And, you know, I was the cheerleader for change and, you know, you can do this and, you know, this would help you. And, and I think the thing that I had learned in motive, I had to learn in motivational interviewing is that's not the way to help people. Um, so I had to, I always say, put your pom poms down. Right. And, if you want to truly help people, you have to do it in a different way. You have to find their motivation and say that back to them and stay away from the praise statements uh, because that does not work. 
And that's one of the main things that I had to work uh, to put that aside and put my own, uh, my own self aside and what I think could truly help someone. You know, and sometimes, you know, it's hard when someone comes up in with a, you know, terrible diet and a high A1C and you're thinking, oh yeah, all that juice you're drinking or all those processed foods, you know, you just gotta put it aside um, because many times someone is carrying a load or some, a trauma in their past that I have no idea about. And so I have to start with a clean slate and give as much empathy and understanding to their situation so that I can truly be in the spirit of MI. Yeah. You, you don't really know what someone else is going through. So it's like, you're actually over assuming by thinking that you can come in with like a quick solution of make this change or make that change. So uh, typically, is there a certain type of client that you have the most success with, with MI? Is there like a certain kind of trade or characteristic that uh, the results are better among clients? Well, we say we don't have to use motivational interviewing in someone who's very motivated, who just says, okay, I just need this. You know, th that actually would frustrate them. So the, the type of client that motivational interviewing works with is anyone who's ambivalent. You know, like, um, I really want to do this, but I just can't, uh, I'm not sure how to get there. So it's kind of deciphering the roadmap, but also like unpacking the pieces of the puzzle of what's getting in the way of them doing what they truly want to do. Right. That's the, the beauty of motivational interviewing. And, you know, that's the, the perfect type of client. You know, so when people say, I'm your hardest patient, you know, they come in, I think, oh, wonderful. Let's unpack it together. Let's figure it out. Yeah, there's more potential there. So with ambivalence, will you just go into that a little bit? Um, would it be fair to say that everyone has ambivalence in their life in some area, um, but just, you know, more in some areas and less in others? we're all ambivalent in many areas, especially when something feels so difficult in our heads. And there's one really uh, wonderful piece of motivational interviewing that we say is the more a client talks about their ambivalence out loud, the more it unwinds for them. And a motivational interviewing practitioner when we help unwind that ambivalence by helping them talk out loud, we can help them get to the place they wanna go without much. You know? Like one of the things that I have struggled with is mindfulness. I know I need to do it, but you know, it just feels like one more thing on the to-do list, right? Um, or sorry, meditation, it's meditation. And uh, so recently over the summer, uh, there's a, fellow trainer that I co-train with um, on some things. And uh, he came to one of my trainings, I came to one of his trainings so we could learn how to co-train together. And so I was in a, in a breakout room with some women who were very new to MI and I was talking about, you know, my ambivalence with meditation. And it was so interesting that as a trainer, just me talking out loud about it, I'm like, oh, got off the training, downloaded an app, like, wow, this really works, you know, and I know it works, but you know, when you actually experience something that quickly, you realize, wow, 
you know, this is why I do what I do. Yeah, sometimes you can uh, be your own worst enemy. Um, so I think shame and guilt are like kind of powerful motivators, maybe to like sustain the status quo. Could you talk a little bit about that? And, you know, if it ever comes up in your work with, with MI, with your clients? Well, I mean, we try to stay away from pathology and focus more on strengths and solutions, right? So yes, people can stay stuck in behavior because of shame and guilt. And, you know, we may, we don't ever, we never shame people or guilt them into anything that's completely opposite of motivational interviewing. But we, um, we try to reflect the hope piece, you know, on the one hand, this has been really challenging for you your whole life, you know, maybe because of the way you were brought up. And on the other hand, you're here because you're wanting your life to be different. Right? So we would um, soften the, the former piece, soften what they, what their experience. I mean, we don't want to soften their experience, but soften the intensity um, in a reflection to reflect the hope piece. So that lands as a stronger component. Interesting. Yeah. I like how you, you focus on the positives because as I said, uh, like shame and guilt are a powerful motivator and to just not really focus on them too much, um, can, can really give more power to their strengths, people's strengths. So in, in terms of your, your own work, what's like the most enjoyable part of, of doing MI, um, and what are some of the, the best kind of results you've had with clients? Well, the beauty of my job is I get to use MI all day long with my clients and I get to train people in it the other days. So I, I use it pretty much all the time. And I was thinking about this when you asked me to do the podcast is um, it, it's such a beautiful thing when you're training people in MI to see the shift in realizing they can help people in a different way and it takes the pressure off of them and does it in such a kind loving way that it leaves them and their clients in a better space and i in trainings i watch people's eyes just go wow i've been doing it wrong my whole life and there's a, a better way a more loving way and that's the beauty of training and the beauty of clients is just being with them in that sacred space of where they want to go and giving empathy to their struggle and pulling for the hope piece that they so want that they so want to leave with and they haven't experienced that or especially in the last you know 20 months it's led to a lot more hopelessness so helping people with that hope piece wherever i am that drives what i do and who i am brilliant yeah it's almost like you've uh made mi your own like you've integrated it into your character which is amazing and the the, the hope piece i feel as though yeah the lockdowns and, and the pandemic have really sapped people's hope and you know people are suffering a lot and in compassion, I've heard it defined as self-compassion or just compassion in general defined as uh, to be with the suffering you're feeling. So um, 
how you know has your work changed during COVID? Um, and also then, you know, an article you had is controlling what you can during COVID. Um, how has it affected your work, COVID overall? And then, you know, focusing on kind of like the controllables as you had in your, your post. Could you speak a little bit about both of those? Well, I think people have felt completely out of control because nothing has been in our control in terms of, you know, um, mass vaccine. I mean, there's, it's all over the place in terms of shifting messaging we've received and um you know we were living our lives you know one day and the next day it was completely changed you know i remember leaving my office on you know march 10th thinking oh i'll be back in a couple weeks and you know 20 months later i'm only working you know in person one day a week and the rest of my work is completely zoom and phone uh which has been okay, you know, and, and I think people are getting used to it and they actually like Zoom because they don't have to worry about all the traffic and getting to my office in Los Angeles. So that's been a positive thing. And if you're truly present on your Zoom calls, you know, it, it, of course it's always best to be in person, but you can still convey presence and empathy on Zoom calls in a way that I never even imagined. Um, COVID really hasn't affected my work, um, except in a positive way with being able to train so many different organizations that I had no contact with before. And I think a lot of my clients who went away actually came back because they didn't have to deal with the, the driving issues in Los Angeles traffic. Uh, and I think um, they are all sensing the need for normalcy or they want normalcy and empathy and they don't know that I do motivation, but they sense it. So part of what I usually say to people is, can you give yourself empathy to whatever you're feeling so you can move forward? And I think that's one of the, the messages of motivational interviewing and, and helping people through this time is, um, giving them empathy, but also are showing empathy and then ha talking to them in such a way so they have more empathy for themselves in the process of all that's going on. Yeah, that's great, actually. So, and, and very relevant to have more empathy, especially during a challenging time like uh, during COVID. W what are some ways people can be more empathetic with themselves and with others uh, as it relates to MI, like kind of in the spirit of MI? Maybe going back to the role play you and I had is like taking off harsh expectations and being more gentle because change usually comes from a place of love and gentleness rather than, you know, driving the whip, right? And, you know, doing one little thing they can do each day rather than a huge laundry list of expectations. Yeah, that's very relevant. I feel as though I try and do too many things and uh, I end up getting nothing done relative to my expectations. So that's very practical because th there's time in everyone's day to do like one effective task, but I think uh, the culture might be to try and do too much or buy that more than you can chew. And then you end up really getting nothing particularly effective done. But uh, I think that's all the questions I have, Susan. Is there anything you didn't uh, get to discuss that you'd like to go over? 
No, that's good, but I'll, I'll leave you with a quote. There's a man who wrote a book, this is not motivational interviewing, but a lot of what he says kind of intertwines. He wrote, his name is uh, James Clear. He wrote a book called Atomic Habits, which you might know about. And uh, he has a quote in that, in the book that says, Rome wasn't built in a day, but they were laying bricks every hour. You don't have to do it all in a day, you just have to lay a brick. Right, so we're laying a brick with ourselves, with each client, um, helping them just a little more each day get to the place they want to go. Yeah, kind of like uh, just gentle baby steps, almost like what we talked about in the role play, where you know I have a little small step that I can take that uh, I'm much more excited about than setting these rigid, harsh, big expectations that are almost like not even actionable. So. Yeah, this has been very useful. Uh, Susan, do you have anything kind of coming up that you want to talk about or mention or anywhere that people can reach you that uh, you'd like to uh, let people know about? Just, you know, if you if you want to find more about my nutrition practice or uh, better yet, my trainings, because that's what excites me. Um, I have uh, a lot of upcoming trainings on my site. I haven't posted the, the ones for January yet, um, but I will shortly. And if you just want to know more about motivational interviewing and the skills, I have a motivational interviewing blog and you can read about a lot of the different skills of motivational interviewing, which will give you a taste for, is this something that you want to subscribe to or not? Um, you know, and of course I have all the usual social media platforms, uh, but you know, just kind of look around, see what you like, see what makes sense and uh, go from there. Yeah, for sure. YouTube is a great resource for uh, motivational interviewing videos, but uh, nothing replaces the real thing. And I got a lot of value out of the, the workshops that I did with Susan. And then also just, as you can see there from the role play, we only talked for, for five minutes and I found it like profoundly refreshing and effective. So I'm a big advocate of MI and I'm motivated now to learn more about it. So thank you very much for your time, Susan. It's been uh, great to chat to you and uh, maybe we can have you on again to go over maybe some more advanced techniques uh, related to MI. Thank you, Ross. I really enjoyed it. It was my pleasure.